Hello and welcome to People Places Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhalt. In this podcast, we'll be talking about international reputation and foreign policy and a few other issues along the way. Today, we're going to think about the role that individuals can have in contributing to the image of the nation on the world stage. And this kind of grows out of conversations we've already had, both about leadership and about royalty. But, you know, there's an awful lot of people uh, contribute to the image of a country who are neither royal nor uh, formal leaders. And I expect that we'll also overlap here a little bit with what we were saying last time about culture. But why don't you start us off, Simon? Where have you seen an individual contributing to the image of a nation state? Does it have to be a small nation state for this to be significant? I think people consistently underestimate what it what it takes uh, to change international perceptions of countries. This is the sort of standard preface to any discussion on national image that most people around the world spend very little time thinking about other countries. They tend to know very little about them. They tend to think about them very little. And therefore, it's relatively unlikely that a single individual can really alter public perceptions of a country certainly in more than the very, very short term. Now, there are exceptions to that. In, a, in an earlier edition, we talked about the impact, for example, that uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, had in, in, in celebrated style on the image of the US in France. Leaders, the head of state usually, can occasionally um, come to define a nation. And that's partly because of the way that human psychology works. We do tend to personalize things. And it's quite difficult to think about a nation as an abstract entity. But if it's personified by uh, Nelson Mandela or Benjamin Franklin or Margaret Thatcher or Winston Churchill, then that's convenient. And it helps us to believe that we understand it better. I mentioned Margaret Thatcher and Winston Churchill. The UK has been clever or lucky in the sense that over the years, it's produced quite a lot of internationally prominent politicians. And the research suggests that most people don't have any idea about their politics. They don't know which party they necessarily come from, but they're conscious of the fact that the leader of that country has a position on the world stage. And that appears to convey something about the importance of that country. But having said all that, as I say, governments often often have unreasonable expectations about the impact that an individual can make. And I've been to so many countries, and I'm sure you have too, where you ask them who their famous sons and daughters are. And they give you a list of about three people, one of whom you might have heard of because they won a tennis championship in 1956. And I tell the the story in in my latest book, The Good Country Equation, of the Croatian minister who, when I asked him that question, which of the uh, celebrated Croatians you wish the world had heard about, He said, oh, well, I know the answer to this because we've had a commission of inquiry looking into it for the last uh, uh, three years or whatever. And there's an individual called Faust Vrancic, who way back uh, in the Middle Ages uh, was allegedly the inventor of the world's first all-metal stay suspension bridge um, (laughs) about 400 years before the first one was ever actually built. And if 
Venetian Dalmatia, which is where Vrancic was actually born, uh, still existed. It doesn't. But if it had been Croatia then, then absolutely uh, they would have that. <laughs> you have to take these things seriously because people are very proud of them. And I, uh, you know, and I, I said to the minister, you must be very proud, but do bear in mind that that fact is going to be of interest to um, students of Renaissance Italy, which is about 0.0000001% of your target audience. But come on. I mean, this is, uh, this is not um, Barack Obama. I thought the same thing with Romania, where they're very caught up still in Nadia Comaneci and mm. Ilya Nastasi, neither of whom yeah. really resonate with contemporary audiences. And mm. uh, But the problem is the audiences want to talk about Dracula, who's, yeah. you know, <laughs> neither, um, well, it's like he's, he's not even real, or, or uh, mm. the historical Dracula is very far removed from the person people want to talk about, and he's hardly a positive Figure. But then what's positive? I mean, you know, they, they, I, I always said to the Romanians, you should be lucky that they've heard of you at all. You know, that's a starter for a conversation, well, isn't I it? You can say, this is what I found talking to people in Kazakhstan, that the smartest hmm. people in government understand that Borat is a treasure for them hmm. because hmm. it means that people at least know one thing about Kazakhstan even though it hmm. is a wrong and uncharacteristic thing it's something yeah. they don't know about Tajikistan it's a starting point they don't have for Uzbekistan and for hmm. the other countries in that region and that can yeah. make an immense difference to uh, hmm. the future of Kazakhstan I, you know ironically hmm. that, that people have a ground floor response to the country, they at, at least recognize the Kazakh uh, color scheme that, you know, the yes. pale blue and yellow, it, it means something. It means Sweden, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, there is something about Kazakhstan that even a comedy has given them. I remember saying many years ago on this topic that it's a little bit like martial arts, that um, if you're if if you're a little person and a very large fat person is running towards you to demolish you, you don't try and stop it because you'll just get flattened. What you use is you use his forward momentum to get him to go where you want him to go, which is to crack his silly head against the wall. So you just right. stick out your little foot and you trip him up. And I think that Borat is an example of how you would do that. The thing you don't do is what the Kazakh ambassador said, which is, um, you know, this is an affront to the glorious nation of Kazakhstan. <laughs> yes. um, where, where, uh, apparently reading from a script written yes, for him by I Sasha know. Baron Cohen. I had a meeting with one of those guys too. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you, tack, you know, you can only tackle humour with humour, otherwise you look like an <laughs> yes. idiot. And what you do is you say, yes, we love that film. Let me tell you something more interesting about the country. Just make sure that it really is more interesting. That's the point. We all We all know that. But I think that the, the, the bottom line is for, for people to have an impact, you really do have to, just like products or anything else, you have to produce them sustainably. You have to produce them regularly over time because it takes decades and generations for people to change their minds about countries. And uh, believing that you can do a one-off action or produce a one-off individual that will change the image of the country is just, it's, it's foolishness. It doesn't happen. Well, here's an example of where it made a difference historically. Sorry to go into histori historian mode. No, please. I'm really struck by the benefit to Poland 
of uh, pianists in the 19th century because they they kept coming along almost like buses, one after the other and after the other, reaching a, a kind of a crescendo with Paderewski in the late 19th, early 20th, uh, early 20th century. And there's that line in T.S. Eliot where he talks about, although she went to see the latest poll, uh, and it, almost as if that you can expect that there's going to be a Polish uh, piano genius coming along. And yet at the time that Poland was getting known for regularly producing geniuses on the piano, it wasn't a nation yet. So it's almost as if before Poland had regained its national identity, it was relevant. So the relevance, even you could say Polish soft power, predated the reformation of the Polish nation state. But I wonder, are there other examples out there of countries that have this this idea of genius being systemic, that you can expect another person in that tradition to come along? Oh, most certainly. And, and negative examples as well. I mean, there are countries that regularly produce international terrorists. Croatia seems to regularly produce international tennis stars, and so it goes on. I think there are two important lessons from the, uh, from the Polish pianist story. One is, and this is the important point, that above all, these are symptoms of structural realities. The reason why Poland is able to do this is because it has the music schools and it has the tradition and it has the educational and cultural hinterland to be able to continue to produce this. And therefore, the perception that Poland is a very musical country is valid and it's validated by the repetition. Public opinion ain't stupid and it knows that one pianist could be an anomaly, but a constant stream of pianists tells you something about the sort of country it is. And the other slightly smaller but also important lesson that it teaches us is that it's going to work better if it's a universal language. Because if Poland produced nothing but writers, then we'd know little about it because the majority of them would be writing in Polish. We only know for about one, Joseph Conrad, because he wrote in French. That's the way that it works. Music is, like sport, a, a wonderful international communicator of excellence. And an example from British history is the importance of the theatrical infrastructure in creating, reliably creating great figures of the stage. And they turned up with tremendous regularity throughout the 19th and early 20th century and maybe had a limited impact on Britain's global reputation until talking films came in. And then suddenly the, the people who were merely good looking in Hollywood were out of a job and they started calling around the uh, British people who'd been trained to enunciate on the stage. You have your British takeover of Hollywood, which seems to have lasted or been present there for, oh, well, really ever, ever since. So that's now 90 years uh, with, with tremendous benefits for the UK to have these you know theatrical people that that somehow embody a certain kind of Britishness. Oh, it was a tremendously, well, I know it helped in the run-up to World War II that people in the US could, could imagine uh, things happening to British people who were the people who acted out their, their dramas for them. People like, uh, for example, uh, Leslie Howard and uh, Vivian Lee. <laughs> okay, there, there are the people who are asked to be in Gone with the Wind because they've been trained in theatre in Britain and they can they can deliver the professional goods uh, in 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 
motion pictures. So that's, I think that's, I agree with you. Can individuals contribute to a good country? There's nothing really in the index that looks at, I suppose the cultural contribution might include literary prizes. Uh, they they don't because it's one of those many areas where there really isn't available data on this for for all countries. The tyranny of doing a, a ranked comparator index is that unless you've got data for the majority of all the countries you cover, and in the case of the Good Country Index, that's 160 or so, then it's not really fair to include it because you're bumping up the countries that happen to have one or happen to be measured. But having having said all that, oh, just while we're on the subject of British actors in Hollywood, you say that it's uh, that, that situation is still extant today. But how do you explain the fact that all villains in American movies have British <laughs> Don't you think we've been somewhat downgraded now, that we're the scariest? No, no, no. I think it's because we don't mind. And uh, other mm. countries will stop going to the movies if their people were villains. But one of these days we should really have a chat about how uh, races and nationalities are portrayed in the media of other countries. I've been doing some research recently on perceptions of Arabs uh, in the United States. Um, and there's been some fascinating work looking at uh, how the Arab has been presented to the American through the popular media. It's deeply and enduringly interesting. So that's one to talk about. So. Would be the, the, the thumbnail, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, because the media is private sector, it can do whatever it likes as long as it's just about legal. Going back to those, uh, those individual performances and other examples, I'm thinking also of how South Korea made a, a kind of structural enlargement of how it contributed, particularly to music and film. When Hallyu, the Korean wave, started getting really, really big, we found lots and lots of Korean performers beginning to emerge on the international stage. Again, as a result of the fact that the support for artists and cultural practitioners in Korea extended from high culture, pianists and cellists and the like, to popular culture. That was what produced Gangnam Style, for yes. example. It's an excellent example. Mm. And Gangnam Style was so much more than just Psy. He stood at the pinnacle of a tremendous industry. And that's why it's been possible for more and more and more Koreans to follow in his footsteps. And the same with Korean film, that last year's big success, Parasite, didn't come from nowhere. It was, it was sustained by decades of investment mm. and skill and success and a whole infrastructure to make that happen. When you're in a country where which doesn't feel comfortable with single individuals coming forward, uh, has a more collectivist approach, maybe that can limit national identity. And you know, here's, a, here's a, or national perception. Here's an example. I, I was arriving once at uh, Oslo Airport and going down, you, could, you had to go down the, uh, an escalator. And as I went down the escalator, I looked across and there was a poster which was revealed more and more and more as, as I went. And it said, uh, at last, a famous Norwegian. And I thought, well, I wonder who this is going to be. And when I could see the whole poster, it said Jarlsberg cheese. That uh, They couldn't even, they were even sort of making a joke out of the absence of famous individuals within that society where attracting attention to yourself is a sort of a something of a, of a social faux pas. Or what about in China, where the emphasis is on the collective and uh, the government has directed attention to one prominent politician, but hasn't really allowed either the image of individuals or the image of cities or the image of anything other than the overall system 
to, to come forward. And that creates a very unnuanced idea of the country. And maybe they're missing a trick and we would like China better if we knew more Chinese individuals. Yes, absolutely. When you were describing Norway, I was thinking of Japan. Again, in anthropological terms, somewhat similar, a collectivist society where indeed there's a Japanese saying, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. There are equivalent uh, phrases in almost every language on earth. It's very common in countries, but in Japan, it's particularly common. The consequence of that is that most people couldn't name a famous Japanese person if you asked them. In the case of Japan, other things come in to take the place of the prominent individuals, the culture more broadly. In the case of China, what moves in to fill that vacuum is the diaspora. Uh, And of course, China has a gigantic diaspora. It must always be remembered that uh, to a very limited degree, governments can control the behavior of their elites, their politicians, their actors, their tennis stars. But what is very hard to do is to control the behavior of the diaspora. And when you've got an enormous diaspora, like, for example, uh, Turkey's diaspora in Germany or the Netherlands, uh, Mexico's diaspora in the United States, millions upon millions of them, those more than anything else are the individuals who, for better or worse, are creating the image of your country in the eyes of the country where they they end up living. And I've been involved on many occasions with governments who've been trying to do something to incentivize their diasporas to be effective informal ambassadors for their country of origin. But it's very, very hard to do, especially because in many cases, the reason they left was because they didn't like their home country much. Well, they like it, but they weren't happy there. So glad you mentioned diasporas, because to me, one one of the strongest memories I have of visiting Armenia was to realize that Charles Aznavour was a tremendously important person and was put forward by Republic of Armenia as a kind of national symbol. And yet he's also the national symbol of of France and a very meaningful person to French people. And so you have somebody who's meaningful in both places and also represents a kind of connection between those two places. Um, well, that's a and, that's a that's a cultural diplomat, isn't it? In the purest yeah, sense no, of the term. Yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely, and a, a really significant human being, being sort of part of the glue that can pull the world together. To be valued in both societies like that is, uh, I, I think, a, rem- a remarkable thing, and a very um, uh, it's a thing that makes me actually quite quite optimistic. That sort of brings me back to the point that you mentioned before about uh, you you asked whether individuals uh, can contribute to the perception or the reality that a country is good in the good country sense of the term. And it occurs to me that some countries are more productive than others when it comes to individuals who prominently do good outside their national borders. So for the same reason that the United Kingdom, London in particular, is the sort of de facto world center for NGOs and charities and international aid. So the figures we regularly produce who are international do-gooders, well, Bono is Irish, but most people don't distinguish um, between the components of the English-speaking world. Bob Geldof also, but they're perceived as being of the Anglosphere. Those are great assets to the image of the same Anglosphere, of 
Britain and Ireland and so forth, because people see that we produce people that go out into the world and do good for all nations. David Attenborough is heard, at least in dubbed form, presenting pro-environmental documentaries on TV sets all over the world and all the rest of it. So if a country is, in heavy quotes, good in the sense that it's outward looking, in the sense that it cares about more than itself and its own interests, the people that it exports, the people that it uh, shows will represent that fundamental character and it will transfer to people's perceptions of the country. I think that's right. And, And this goes to a point you've made many times before, which is about international image is about what's relevant to your audience, not about what's what's relevant to you. And there are lots of examples of countries who talk about or direct attention to somebody who just isn't relevant or or to to an external audience in the way of your Croatian bridge designer. There is a mystery here, Nick, that, you know, one, one can make as many rules about all of this as one wants, but then there are always anomalies. And I've just been thinking as we've been talking about the anomalies. I said earlier on, and I do believe it as a general rule, that a single individual is very unlikely to make somewhat obscure country famous. Yet what about Björk and Iceland? Björk is hardly a mainstream pop star. And yet in large parts of Europe, she really did uh, help to put Iceland on the map. Now, that's one individual and one not very well-known country. Was it simply because she was rather extraordinary? I shouldn't talk about her as if she was dead, but she's not as famous as she was. And yet in the Faroe Islands, uh, you've got a a performer who uh, is in every way uh, as good as Björk. Rather embarrassingly, his name has slipped my mind for the moment, but it doesn't matter. (laughs) How come he didn't do the same for, for, for the Faroe Islands as Björk did for Iceland? Or let's take a trip across to South Asia. You've got uh, Bangladesh, a country that has produced at least two notable, world-famous do-gooders, beneficiaries of the international system. How come they're not more famous? How come they haven't made Bangladesh more famous? So there's some mystery there in the nature of the individual and how they present themselves, combined with the nature of the country and how it presents itself, which makes the thing still somewhat unpredictable. Occasionally, you can strike lucky. The Faroese singer, by the way, is called Taitur. Should be world famous, could be world famous, perhaps chose not to be world famous, but he hasn't put the Faroes on the map. Most people still think the Faroe Islands, if, at least if they're English speakers, are something to do with Egypt rather than something to do with Denmark. <laughs> oh, boy. But, you know, that's the, that's the way it is. And, and, and in the end, there's a kind of primitive justice, a basic justice in all of this. The remarkable countries that have remarkable societies tend to, have, tend to produce remarkable people. And those remarkable people are often adventurous and outgoing and often make their mark on the world. And it would be difficult to think of a case where an individual had become famous and somehow unjustly or unworthily made their country famous. I can't think of any flukes in that sense, really, where a person has arisen from a previously uh, unknown or not highly regarded country and yet through their force of personality has persuaded people that that country is somehow better or more interesting than it is. I don't think that happens. I think that the people who come out of countries, generally speaking, are representative of something important about that country. And if we can't think of anybody from a certain country, well, it may well be because that country is not producing remarkable people on a regular basis. Or if it is, 
the culture tends to uh, keep them very, very low profile. I think that's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for listening. This has been People, Places, Power. I'm still Nick Cull. And I'm still Simon Anhold. <laughs>